name is Suzanne Legrand, and I'm speaking today with Carolyn Criado Perez, who is the author of Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Welcome. Hello. I have been reading your book, and I have been enthralled, absorbed, and also deeply disturbed by (laughs) the amount of gender inequality that you document in your book. It's really quite stunning. You talk about and you show how there is gender inequality at work, in language, in the images we find when we do a Google search, um, in medicine, in technology, in architectural design, even in the temperature in offices. And so I'm wondering if to start, you could talk a little bit about what is data exactly and why did you choose to focus your book around this concept of data bias? So, I mean, data basically is any kind of information. Um, I think we think of it just as uh, something that's sort of perhaps relevant to the, to the tech world. It's just about numbers. It is a lot about numbers, um, but really it's just another word for information. Um, and the reality of the information that we have in the world from, you know, the information we know about um, human history to the information we know about the human body to the information we know about, uh, you know, how human beings spend their day, how they work, basically everything that we know. Um, that is data, and the vast majority of it has been based on the male body and the typical male lifestyle. And as a result, um, everything that we design from cars to medication to, as you say, office temperature uh, via um, all sorts of technology and even the economy, based on male body and typical male lifestyle. Um, and the result is that women are suffering, and this suffering uh, can be pretty minor. Um, it can just be things like shivering in a office um, that's set to a male temperature norm, but it can also be being seriously injured. So women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured if they're in a car crash, um, and that is because of the car having been designed around a typical um, male car crash test dummy. Um, through to dying. So again, in a car crash, women are 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash. Um, And that also goes for medication. Um, Women are more likely to die following a heart attack, for example. Um, And all of these can be traced back to the way that we have designed cars, medical interventions, pretty much everything around men. So when it comes to cars, um, the typical and most commonly used male uh, car crash test dummy is based around a 50th percentile male and that is too tall and it's too heavy um, and it doesn't account for all sorts of ways that the female body differs from the male body you know we're not just small men um, we have different weight distributions different muscle mass distribution uh, our pelvises are different even our spinal columns are different um, and the result is that uh, you know the reason that women are are more likely to be seriously injured and potentially to die is things like the pedals 
are too far away for women to be able to sit in what is called the standard seating position. So women have to sit much further forward. Um, and that puts our legs at the wrong angle and it, and, um, it puts us too close to the steering column and it makes us at much higher risk in a frontal collision. Hmm. Um, there has been what is called a female car crash test dummy designed, um, but it is just actually a scaled down male dummy. And as I said, you know, women are not just scaled down men. Um, and it's in EU regulations, for example, it's only uh, used in one test and only in the passenger seat. So, you know, there's just no regulatory data on um, what an actual female um, would be, you know, how an actual female would be, uh, how her safety would be compromised or not um, in the driver's seat, for example. So um, it's interesting. So so you, the title of your book is Invisible Women. So we have a situation yeah. where half the world's global population is women. And yet, in terms of how things are designed, for example, cars, it's as if women don't exist, they're invisible. I mean, why is it that Car manufacturers, for example, don't take into consideration, for example, the, the weight distribution of women's bodies when they think about um, designing car crash dummies. I think that this is, and this is, I mean, this is the thesis of the book, that this is because we are so used to thinking of men as the standard human from which women are a sort of niche aberration. You know, we are a deviation from standard humanity. Um, and that's really, I think, the only way you can explain it, because I don't believe that the people who are researching medical disorders or the people who are designing cars or any of the ways that women are left out and, and you know, put at risk in their daily lives. I don't believe any of the people who are doing this, you know, don't care about women and think it's OK that women are more likely to die. Um, you know, the person designing a car has a mum, for example, and they don't want their mother to die if she gets into a car crash um but we are this way of thinking where when we think of a human we think of a man that i think a lot of the time we just aren't noticing and i think that even when we do notice again because this way of thinking is so pervasive that the excuses that get used um only really make sense as, as excuses if you don't think of women as half the population so for example, one of the reasons um, that you hear for why uh, female bodies are not included in medical trials, and by the way, you know, this excuse obviously doesn't work for female cells, um, uh, but, but they are still massively underrepresented. But anyway, for female animals, for female humans, the argument goes that female bodies are too variable, too complicated, too hormonal, um, and therefore too costly to test on. Um, but if you're thinking rationally and logically, you will be thinking, well, nevertheless, these are bodies that are 50% uh, of the population who are likely to get this disease, to need this medication, to have to undergo this diagnostic test. So if medicine is going to work for humanity as a whole, we're going to have to test on them. Um, so to me, the excuse is, well, be angry. They also make me think that it's just another indication, another piece of evidence of how strong this sort of myth that, that men make up, let's say, 80% of the population is. Um, and, and I must stress that this is men and women who suffer from, from this bias. I mean, I, the way I came into feminism was 
basically discovering that I had this bias. Um, I had grown up not at all a feminist, not at all politically active. Um, if you'd asked me if I was a feminist, I'd have said absolutely not. I mean, I grew up in the 90s and that was a very anti-feminist moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read this book when I was 25 because that was when I went to university for the first time. And um, it was a book on uh, gender and language. And the author was talking about male default in language. And, um, you know, he, words like he to mean he or she, man to mean humankind. And again, I had heard uh, that there was this issue with using he to mean he or she. But I think like a lot of people who don't necessarily know about how pervasive this is, um, I just sort of rejected it and thought, well, that's just so stupid. Everyone knows it means he or she. And this is another example of how feminists get hung up on trivial issues. Um, But then the author pointed out that, that studies show that when women hear the word he or read the word man, they picture a man. And I found that so shocking, not only because I realized, wow, that is in fact what I do, but also I reflected on how had I got to the age of 25 and never noticed that every time I was picturing a human uh, and the gender hadn't been specified as female, picturing a man. Um, And just that fact, the fact that it had just been going on completely subconsciously and automatically and so much so that I hadn't even noticed, uh, really kind of blew my mind. Um, and, but I, you know, I, th- I think it's really important that we are honest with ourselves about the fact that this is something that we all do. Um, and, and it's also, you know, change this. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. Well, it, it struck me in reading your book, um, that you document just how pervasive inequality is in so many different areas of our, of our world. And yet, if you were to ask most people, I think there's a perception that gender equality is, um, you know, we are moving towards a state of gender equality very rapidly, and we have progressed Mm. quite a bit. So there's an interesting disconnect between the actual information that you have looked at and the perceptions that people have about um, women's equality. Absolutely. But I mean, this is kind of what I mean. The, our perceptions are so different from what reality actually is. Um, and, and, and I really think that um, the cultural bias towards representing men um, has a lot to answer for. So, you know, I think that um, we're kind of used to the discussions about how women are underrepresented in Um, films and the media and and politics and there is this sort of sense that we need to do something about it but um, I don't think there is necessarily a conversation about the impact that it's having on our view of the world and I I actually think that you can't separate the way that women are underrepresented in numbers and data you know supposedly objective data um, and the way women are underrepresented in the world as we reflect it back at ourselves Um, because they're all tied into the way that we just don't notice. If you're used to seeing the world as mainly male, you're not. You're you're going to notice when there are you know more women. You're not going to notice when it's all male because that just looks completely obvious. Um, I mean, for example, I campaigned in uh, in the UK for the first statue of a woman in Parliament Square. Now, Parliament Square is 
you know, arguably the most high profile square in Britain. It's right opposite the Houses of Parliament. Um, it's where all sorts of protests happen. Um, and there were 11 statues there and they were all of men. And no one had noticed. I had so many people coming up to me, you know, who are feminists, who are women, who work in the area, just saying, how did we not notice that all these statues were of men? But they would have noticed if they were all of women, because that's not normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, that that is the issue. And that's why we're not noticing how big the problem still is, is that it's just so normalized that we don't notice. Male it. is the default, as you say. And because it's the default, we, we tend not to even notice it as a gendered position. Yeah, and I, mean, I think that that's, that is a huge part of the problem, is that we think that when we're talking about humanity, we're speaking gender neutrally, but we're not. We're basically always talking about men. Um, but it's very, very dangerous that we use gender neutral terms when we're actually talking about men because it hides the extent of the problem and therefore makes it much, much harder to fix. So, you know, I I can't think of any feminist who won't have at some point come up against the argument, you know, when they're saying, why haven't you mentioned women in X, Y, or Z? And someone will say, well, they haven't specified men either. Not realizing that that's because you don't have to specify men. You know, they do go without saying. Um, And that is because when we are thinking gender neutrally, we are on the whole thinking of men. there was a really interesting study I came across uh, when I was researching the, the book, uh, which got people to draw what they pictured when they heard a certain number of gender neutral words, including words like person and researcher, participant, um, designer, uh, user. And um, for all these words, men w- drew a man between 70 and 80 percent of the time. So for person, men drew a man 80% of the time. Uh, Women were slightly better, but they were still much, much more likely to draw a man for all of these words, except for person. For person, women were more or less 50-50. But for the rest of the words, women were also much more likely to draw a man. Um, And, you know, I think that just sort of highlights the extent of the problem. These are gender-neutral words. There is absolutely no reason to think that a user or a person um, is more likely to be a man than a woman, and yet we do. And what's the problem with that exactly? I mean, you you say this is a larger problem for how we conceive the world. So so let's just say we we do think of designers um, as men. Um, Why is that a, a problem for how we think about the world? Well, it's a problem because we don't realize that when we are designing gender neutrally, we are actually designing for men. Um, and you can see that from the way that uh, everything from, as you know, we opened with car, um, car design um, through to architecture, through to medical care is designed to cater for men. Um, and that leaves women with substandard care and, you know, more dangerous cars. Mm-hmm. So to take, um, Uh, heart attacks, for example, um, what I think most people will have been taught is, you know, the standard uh, typical heart attack symptoms is pain in the chest and down the left arm. And those are the typical heart attack symptoms if you're a man. If you're a woman, actually, they aren't the typical heart attack symptoms. In fact, only one in eight women will experience chest pain. Um, 
And so women's symptoms are what are called atypical, but of course they're not at all atypical for women. They're very, very typical. Um, and women are more likely to experience breathlessness, nausea, indigestion, uh, fatigue. And the problem is, first of all, that women aren't necessarily noticing that they're having a heart attack because public health information is so heavily biased towards male heart attacks, even though uh, heart disease is the number one killer of women in the US, for example, and has been since 1989. Um, but then also it's about the way we are educating doctors. And so um, they are not being taught enough about the differences between how men and women present for all sorts of disorders, but, you know, sticking with heart disease for the moment. Um, and so women, for example, in the UK, are 50% more likely to be misdiagnosed if they have a heart attack. And that's for a number of reasons. It's partly because of the symptoms, uh, because they, you know, don't fit into the typical male pattern. But then even women who do experience chest pain and so might be sent for a diagnostic test, those tests are designed around the typical way the the male heart attack mechanically happens. So uh, a very common test would be looking for blockages. Um, but female heart attacks may not present with blockages in the same way. And so women are being sent home from hospital, having suffered a heart attack, but without it being diagnosed. And of course, they go home and they die. Um, so, and as I said, you know, this this is not a deliberate attempt to kill off women. You know, nobody wants women to die. But the problem with thinking of humanity as the male is the standard uh, human and women is just as atypical, basically, which is a term that comes up quite a lot when you're talking about 50% of humanity. Um, this is what happens. You end up with designing everything around only one half of humanity um, because you think you're designing it for everyone by doing that. Um, so male default is incredibly dangerous for women's health. And given that it is the default and so assumed as normal, how is it that we go about changing this situation? Well, I mean, I think that changing societal perceptions is a long game. You know, that is going to come about from finally getting to for it to be as normal to have a female lead in a film, a female politician, a female, you know, a, a female anyone in the public sphere. Um, and that is a very, very important part of, of changing this because uh, we need to be able to see women everywhere to the same extent as men to have people not just sort of uh, naturally kind of drink this in via cultural osmosis that women are around 20% of the population, even though obviously we aren't, but that's how we're represented. But in terms of fixing it um, more immediately in data, I mean, that's incredibly simple. You just need to start collecting sex disaggregated data. It needs to no longer be acceptable to make the excuse that, for example, as I said, you know, women are too complicated. Or another example that you'll hear is, well, we've not collected data on women in the past, so we can't start now um, because we don't have, uh, you know, comparable data. Um, those arguments need to be rejected um, and they need to no longer be acceptable. And we just need to recognize, you know, there is no excuse now. We know that women are dying as a result of not collecting sex-disaggregated data, and as a result of not doing gender analysis on our data. Um, and that needs to stop being seen as acceptable and something that we just can't help. 
I think that by starting to collect the data and starting to do that, you know, that will be part of the journey towards challenging male default, um, as well as obviously stopping its worst effects. I'm curious, what made you start thinking about data in this way and write this book? I mean, it, it was the heart attack hmm. information, you know, discovering that female heart attack symptoms were different. I just found it so shocking that I didn't know that. And also, you know, that I think we are to a certain extent aware of and talk about um, female underrepresentation in in culture, in, in the media, in films, in um, politics. But the idea that it was in this, this area that I had always been taught was objective, that you don't question because it's just facts and facts are, are neutral, um, discovering that actually it turns out these facts are not neutral at all, mm-hmm. um, that they are riddled with the same problems as we have elsewhere in the culture, and that, you know, the problems here are, are you know, as I said, life or death, was so shocking to me. Um, is part of this whole swamp of not remembering that we're ignoring women but no one's you know it's not it's not there's not a direct correlation between a woman not being in a film and a woman dying there is a direct correlation between not collecting data on women uh when we're creating medication and women dying you know that that is a cause and effect because men are less likely to a know what it is that women need and b to notice when they're excluding women um and this can be, you know, annoying and, and sort of potentially contributing to social stereotypes when it's things like, uh, you know, Google image searches delivering up men when you search for CEO. But then you start thinking about things like, um, what about when we start releasing algorithms into uh, medical diagnosis? The data sets we have there are horrendously male biased. Um, and what we know about machine learning is that it amplifies bias. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the studies that have been done on, for example, how uh, an image labeling algorithm will be much more likely to uh, image label in a sexist way if it's given a sexist database. You know, it, it makes it much, much worse because the machine, the, the algorithm is sort of, quote unquote, getting better and better at being sexist. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's one thing when it's image labeling. It is quite another when it's deciding whether or not you have a fatal disease, for example. We know that it would be a good idea to, A, save women's lives and also make women a little bit more comfortable in, in many situations. But there's also an argument to be made that that including and thinking about women's experiences could also create better data overall related to sort of improving women's lives but basically um this mathematician uh was uh it was a female math- mathematician and she was watching this male mathematician uh trying to um show a paper model of the hyperbolic plane um and the hyperbolic plane is a concept in math which has been kind of uh, theorized for a long time, but no one had been able to present it physically. Um, and this is a, a, a pretty important mathematical concept. It's what is used for 
uh, things like acoustics and um, uh, for for sort of wind flow over cars and for animators and it's also integral to theories of the universe. So you know it's something that gets used quite a lot, but no one was able to present it physically until this woman came along from Latvia and had grown up doing crochet and she saw this male mathematician uh, with this this model that she described as disgusting um, and she realized immediately that she could represent this hyperbolic plane using crochet and so that's what she did and it's now become the standard model for representing this uh, mathematical concept um, and what I find really interesting about that is that you know the majority male mathematicians have been kind of grappling with this for decades, you know, for a hundred years, no one had been able to figure out how to represent this thing. Um, and could a male mathematician have come up with it? Sure. If he also happens to be a keen crocheter, but the reality is most men don't crochet. I mean, it, it's seen as a feminine skill. It's seen as something that women do. I know various women who crochet. I don't know any men who crochet. Um, and, you know, there's various examples. I mean, that's a sort of very colorful example, but there are other pieces of evidence, like, for example, um, broadcast science competitions. Uh, women tend to do better at those. And you have to sort of think about why that is. Is it that women are just biologically better at science? Or is it that they are bringing a skill to a male-dominated field um, that has been overlooked and that they haven't realized, you know, they haven't been able to see what the issue might be. Um, another example that I really loved was um, this uh, This tech team had designed this, uh, this app um, that they put on this phone to give to nurses in South Africa who were going out um, to visit patients in sort of uh, various communities um uh various low-income communities um and the nurses loved the app they said it was great they were really excited about using it um but then user uptake was incredibly low and the team just couldn't figure out what was going on um and eventually uh, a new team took over the project who happened to have a woman on the team and she basically immediately discovered that the phone was too big um so the women couldn't fit it in their pockets and they couldn't fit it in their bras. And so they weren't taking the phones with them. Oh, fascinating. Hmm. that's such a simple example of the kind of thing, you know, that a woman would think about. One of the things that I wrote about in the book, this is just a bugbear of mine, and I, I accept that it's, you know, not a suffer, but as someone who does quite a lot of broadcast and public speaking, you know, the mic packs that you have to use, just not adapted to female clothes. Um, hmm. And, you know, every single woman I know who does any kind of public speaking or broadcast, we, you know, will always be complaining about these mic packs and, you know, where are you going to put them? And the poor audio guys who just sort of feel like, you know, I don't want to have to put this, you know, in your bra and where am I going to clip this? Um, and you just sort of think that if someone had been designing that with female clothes in mind, this would, you know, this would not be a problem. Um, mm. But it's designed for someone who's wearing a suit, who's someone who's got a lapel and someone who's got a big pocket. And of course, women's clothes often don't even have any pockets, let alone a big one. Yeah. We have been discussing your new book, 
Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. It is a fascinating read, and it is uh, incredibly eye-opening as well. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Get up, get up. Mm-hmm.